Welcome into Ally Radio. It's Friday, July 21st, 2023. I'm Noah Glick, executive editor of the Sierra Nevada Ally. Nevada lawmakers wrapped up the legislative session earlier this summer, but the work of actually implementing bills is now underway. So what should we all be paying attention to now that we're in between sessions? We break that down with Dr. Sandra Cosgrove, a history professor at the College of Southern Nevada. Then, with weekend temperatures expected at above or near 100 degrees for much of the northern Nevada region, that means more snow coming down the mountains. How do water managers handle the various needs and challenges that occur when historic snowpack meets extreme heat? Our contributor Hannah Truby joins the show to share some of her reporting. There's a lot to get into, so let's start with some quick headlines we're paying attention to this week. Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo has pulled Nevada out of the U.S. Climate Alliance, a state-led initiative to reduce greenhouse gas emissions primarily by reducing fossil fuel use. In a letter to U.S. Climate Alliance Executive Director Casey Cadams, Lombardo said, quote, While the goals of the U.S. Climate Alliance are ambitious and well-intentioned, these goals conflict with Nevada's energy policy objectives, end quote. Lombardo outlined the state's updated energy policy through an executive order in March, but the official plan has been removed from the state's websites. We have reached out to the governor's office multiple times, and they have not responded to our request for an interview. The Douglas County School Board has chosen their new legal representation, and they've selected Joey Gilbert from Reno. The Nevada Independent reports the board voted 4-2 this week to instate Gilbert to replace Maupin, Cox, and Lagoy. That firm has represented the board for more than 20 years and has experience in education law. Gilbert told the board during this week's meeting that he doesn't have experience in education law, but that he is taking classes and has identified other attorneys with whom he could consult with. The move comes after a May meeting of the school board where trustees proposed a new rule that would ban transgender athletes from participating on teams and using locker rooms of their gender identity, instead forcing them into sports based on biological sex. At that meeting, board president Susan Jansen said while she appreciates the work of Mop and Cox and Legoy, she doesn't feel like the law firm is aligned with the mission of the current board. Well, I appreciate the legal advice provided by the board. By Maupin, Cox, and Legoy, I do not feel that your law firm is aligned with the mission of the current board. As a result, I'll make a motion to place on the June agenda to terminate the contract with our current legal firm, Maupin, Cox, and Legoy. Also for the June agenda that the superintendent as well as board members are to recommend applicants for new legal counsel. And in the event that the district is sued, I'd like to add an agenda item also to be placed on the June agenda to approve the retention of outside counsel to handle that specific matter. So that means Joey Gilbert must be more closely aligned with the board's mission. Around the same time that the school board was discussing whether or not to update its transgender athlete policy, Gilbert posted this clip to Instagram. When your son or daughter says they don't think that they're a girl or a boy, politely tell them, I'm sorry, but you're a girl. And then say, I'm sorry, you're a boy. It's really that simple. Let them progress naturally through puberty. And then when they're 25 or so and the frontal lobe of their brain is developed, If they then want to revisit their gender uh, dysphoria or confusion issues, we'll talk about it then. But until then, we're going to leave it alone. Gilbert is known locally for his in-your-face billboards, but more recently ran unsuccessfully for governor in 2022. 
even challenging the results of the contest, which cost him $250,000 in attorney fees and sanctions. He was also a participant in the January 6th rally at the U.S. Capitol that turned into an insurrection, although he has said on the record that he never entered the U.S. Capitol building. It may feel like an old story at this point, but the U.S. Congress is once again considering cutting funding to public media. Last Friday, the House Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education Appropriations Subcommittee approved its draft appropriations legislation for fiscal year 2024, and in that draft, federal funding for public media came out to zero dollars. The bill would eliminate advanced funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which helps fund public media outlets across the country. According to the advocacy group Protect My Public Media, public media reaches 99% of Americans, and in rural and tribal areas, it's often the only source of local news and information. The group cites data showing that public media costs the American taxpayer roughly $1.40 every year. Compare that to the more than $2,000 the average American taxpayer gave to the military in 2021, including more than $900 on average to defense contractors. That's all according to the National Priorities Project. Do you want to help support public media? You can call and email your representative and U.S. senator and tell them to protect funding for public media. Dr. Sandra Cosgrove is a history professor at the College of Southern Nevada. Dr. Cosgrove, thank you so much for taking some time. Thank you for having me. So, as you know, the legislative session in Nevada wrapped up earlier this summer, and it's going to be a couple years before lawmakers get back together to have another session. So what should folks be paying attention to in the meantime? Is there something that people can be paying attention to? Sure. When the, the legislative session ends, um, our legislators just go back to being regular citizens, but, but that means they don't have staff. They don't have access to their information that they had access to as a legislator. And so from a, a constituent or a Nevadans perspective, that means we're kind of on our own trying to figure out which bills passed and then which ones are being implemented and by who. And so that means we have to actually look at the bill to see if we can discern, is it health and human services? Is it Department of Corrections? And then who within those agencies we would contact to make sure that bill was being implemented. So what you're saying is after lawmakers wrap up, there there's hundreds of bills that are presented during the session. You know, often dozens, if not hundreds, are passed every session. So there's a lot to go through. It's not like there's a standard oversight board or a, some kind of nope. agency that just overlooks to make sure this all gets implemented, right? It's kind of up to individual agencies or branches. Yep, that's correct. So even... even um, so there's what's called the Legislative Council Bureau. That's just the attorneys that help legislators write bills. That does not help uh, legislators in making sure that they're tracking the bills after the session is over. And it doesn't help us if we're just trying to figure out where a bill went to be able to ask the person wherever the bill is if they're implementing it. So it's incumbent upon a lot of citizens to really take up the mantle of making sure that this happens, right? Yes. I mean, and it has it has really deep repercussions because in 2019, we passed a restorative justice bill for our schools, and it kind of redid everything that the schools were doing as far as discipline. But the bill was assuming there would be more social workers and that there would be training and that parents would be contacted. And then that didn't happen. 
And so that means that law got repealed this time because that law didn't get implemented. It made everybody upset because now we have to revert back to expelling six-year-olds if six-year-olds are having problems. So that's kind of like it writ large, one of the biggest examples I can show of everybody walking away from a bill and no one making sure it got implemented. That's interesting because the other thing that comes to mind to me is that during the session, there's committee meetings, there's floor hearings, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But then when session's over, that doesn't mean the work is done necessarily, but in some ways it is. It's done for this session, but then the work begins for the next session. So what's going on in the meantime? Sure. So over the interim, there's interim committees. The two main ones are Interim Finance and Legislative Commission. Those committees are real kind of powerhouses because they almost have quasi-legislative authority. So let's say, for instance, AB 37, which was a bill to create a work behavioral health workforce center within the Nevada system of higher education. But legislators said to the system of edu- higher education, here's some things we want you to do first before you get the money. But they're going to be gone. So what they did is they sent the money over to interim finance and they said, when and she comes and tells you we've done these things that the legislator said, then you're allowed to give them money. But they oftentimes go beyond that. There's a point where like um, this Nevada system of higher education shows up and says, oh, we thought we could do that thing, but we couldn't do that thing. We still need more money. Well, right now, the interim finance committee would say, OK, well, you're still going to get the money. We'll waive the thing that you were supposed to do. We'll give you the money. Technically, that's a legislative function that's not supposed to be happening during the interim, but because no one sues to stop it, it just happens. Legislative commission is the same way. It oftentimes um, enacts regulations. So it'll say this is how the bill is supposed to be implemented, and we're going to implement some regulations. I have a feeling if anybody really wanted to sue both of them, they could, we would, they would get rid of them. They would say that's too much authority. The other committees mirror the regular legislative committee. So there's an education committee, there's a health and human service committee. And you would think, well, maybe those are the committees that do implementation. Mm, Not really. They're looking at what bills need to be brought next session. Now they might get told there's a problem with a bill and that's why it's not getting implemented. So they might put that on their agenda, say, hey, we got to fix this. But a lot of times they've already moved down the road and they're thinking about the next session. I want to ask a follow-up then about this authority of the, the interim committees, because it sounds like because lawmakers are meeting every two years, there seems to be a desire from the interim committees to keep things moving in the interim. But do they really have the authority in order to make changes to law that's already been passed? Nope. So they can they can do studies. They can make recommendations for bill draft requests. So that's kind of a pre-bill. Um, they can they can draft a resolution that will be presented to the legislature, but they can't actually open up a law and change it. Now, if somebody wanted to sue, you can go to the courts. And if something is legally wrong, the courts can then say that needs to be taken out or that needs to be fixed. But those interim committees are just more like study groups. Got it. OK, well, that's really helpful. So then so we've got essentially there's two buckets of interim committees. Like you said, there's the finance and the and the legislative committee. Um And then you've got all these sort of parallel committees going on. So I guess what are some of the, I guess, are there any more higher priority kind of committees or things that people should be paying attention to in particular uh, in between sessions? Um, I would say interim finance is probably the most important because they do have the ability to allocate money and kind of make decisions about money. And oftentimes, you know, if your bill doesn't have money, it's not going anywhere. So I would say that one's one they really pay attention to. Um, The other ones... 
if you want to, to enact, have a law enacted or have a law changed, there is a lot of interaction between the public and those interim committees because things are slower. And so it does give us the ability to have more impact on a future bill. But uh, based on, you know, my experience and a lot of other people's experience that I've heard from, once a bill is passed, it, it's pretty much we're on our own trying to figure out whether it's going to get implemented or not. So then let me ask you this. Given that our legislative process is one that has lawmakers meeting every two years, do you think that that makes sense today? Do you think that we should maybe think about adjusting that? There's been a lot of discussion about that topic for at least the last 15 years, because as the state got really big at the end of the 1990s, you know, we went from everybody knowing each other to lots and lots of people moving here. But every time we try to put a bill through the legislative session, it has to be a constitutional amendment because our sessions and how long they are is written into our state constitution. And there are there are groups in the state that would prefer that the legislature not meet, you know, gaming, mining, you know, the big industries like, you know, just being able to go to the governor or go to be able to go to a mayor and have something happen. So there's been kind of pushback on changing the way we run things as far as our legislature. I think and a lot of us think. There should at least be a legislative session of 60 days every year. So take the 120 days and break them up so it's every year. That way, in July, if we figure out, hey, this law has a problem, I'm not set waiting two years to bring it back. I can just say, well, you know, in March or April, the, se- the legislature will back- be back in session. I can just bring it up then. It's an interesting idea. I, I can't help but think about the session and how lawmakers seem to wait until the last minute to to <laughs> to put forward all these bills. I don't know how that would work with 60 days, but uh, that is an interesting idea. I know there is a website for uh, the legislature. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that? How can people find information there? Sure. So what you would have to do is you would go to the Nevada legislature's website. And on the website, you'll see at the top, it says Nellis. And that's the electronic legislative service. But when you click on that, here's something you need to be aware of. You're going to come to a page and it's going to say legislation and committees. And people were actually emailing me going, oh, my gosh, all the bills are gone. Well, no, we had two special sessions after the regular session. So what you have to do is click on uh, where it says um, pick a session and then you have to go to the regular session. So when you click the regular session, all the bills show up and all the committee work shows up on there. You can go through. There's reports of all the bills that were passed, the bills that were vetoed. Um, there's the recordings on the committee pages, but it's up to us to find the bill, make sure that it passed, make sure that it got signed, and then read through the final version to figure out where it landed to make sure that it gets implemented. Dr. Sandra Cosgrove is a history professor at the College of Southern Nevada. Dr. Cosgrove, thank you so much. Well, thank you. We have a transcript of our full conversation online at our website, sierranevadaally.org. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to get the latest news and reports from the Ally sent directly to your email inbox. It's free, and we won't share your info or send you spam. Scout's honor. All right, moving on to something we are all feeling right now, the summer heat. Triple-digit temperatures are forecast for the region much of the weekend, which could have health and environmental impacts to residents. But there's also an historic amount of snowpack hanging out up in the Sierra, thanks to a particularly wet winter. And when extreme heat comes and melts all that snow, well, that water has to run down into rivers, creeks, and streams where someone has to manage all that. 
Hannah Truby is a graduate student at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Journalism, and she recently looked into this challenge facing water managers. Her report can be found at our website, sierranevadaally.org. And we recently chatted about what she found out. Here's our conversation. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the story. It was a very interesting look at sort of the challenge that water managers are facing with the historic amount of, of snow. So just tell our listeners who may not have read it, what, what is the story about? Yeah, so basically it's just a little bit of like a explanatory piece on what goes into water flow management um, in relation to the Reno-Tahoe area. Because like you said, the last winter was historic for snowpack. We got a huge amount of snowfall and, um, you know, it's summer now. And so, you know, starting we see it in the rivers and it's starting to really flow. So, um yeah, I was curious what, you know, goes into managing that, you know, where does it come from? I didn't know anything to start, so. Well, that's fascinating, right? Because that's kind of what we do as journalists. We we take a curiosity and we go and follow it and try to explain. So in terms of water management, what, what are some of the things that you learned? Like you say you came in knowing nothing. So what did you learn through this reporting? Yeah, so I learned that Chief Deputy Water Master is a real title and it's a <laughs> really big job. And um there's an office here, uh, the Watermaster Office in Reno, Nevada, and it goes back to 1926, I believe. And so they kind of control all water flow and regulate all kinds of water flow, whether that's agricultural or munis- municipal. And, you know, they do the Carson River system, the Truckee River system and operations at Lake Tahoe. Got it. So it's it's they're managing the entire water system. And I think it's at least worth noting some of the reason why it uh, came about. Right. Uh, this was as early white settlers from the east were coming into the the Tahoe area. There's a lot of fights going on over over water, right? So I guess, can you give me a little bit of the, the background or the backdrop to this office and how that came about? Yeah. So um, in the early 1900s, like right before this office was created, there was a lot of um, settlers coming in, you know, Manifest Destiny coming west, settling in Nevada, and there's all this land. And so they wanted to, you know, start, you know, making farms and, um you know, drilling for pipes and agriculture and things like that. So there was a lot of unchecked water use is what the watermaster told me. And there was was a quiet title action where the um, the settlers in the court had to find out a fair way to split the water and, A, find out how much water was available and, you know, what a fair amount to give each plot, each uh, settler. I think it's worth mentioning, too, and, and your piece gets into this, is the impact that that's had on indigenous communities, right? The, the folks who were here long before any other settlers made their way out here. Um, you know, we saw that uh, some of your reporting got into some of those issues. What, what did you learn in that regard? I was just curious about water rights and how you even kind of grant water rights to who and, you know, how can you grant a right to a natural resource? And so I was curious and I learned that there's, you know, these things called senior right and junior right to water. And um, I guess the senior rights kind of precede the junior rights, meaning whoever was here first, you know, the indigenous people, of course, they get the most senior rights to the water, meaning that they kind of get to decide first and foremost what water they need, how much. Um, and then based off of that, it basically flows down, you know, for lack no of a better intended, word, no yeah. uh, you know, so they kind of um, decide first and foremost how much they need. And um, based off that, the junior rights are more subject to, you know, say if there's a, a drought year. If water needs to be turned off, junior rights get turned off first. Um, senior rights kind of stay priority. I'm just generally curious, what are some of the big challenges facing water managers? It's, you know, we've, we've looked at the history, but when you've got a historic amount of snowpack up in the mountains, that seems like it would be a good thing, but that's not necessarily the case, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it seems like a really tricky job um, because you kind of have to make sure that 
you have all these river systems in uh, reservoirs that you need to make sure have, you know, the right amount of water in them at a time. So in dry years, of course, it's tricky because you have to shut off water flows to some of those. And then, um, you know, those trickle down to the people in the in the cities, meaning like those like municipal uses kind of get turned off. And then in wet years like this one, you'd think it'd be easy or like at least make the job easier. But I think it's still tricky because, you know, where's water going to flow from, you know, Lake Tahoe if it gets over flat then the Truckee River system? Either way, it's kind of like a, a tipping scale. Like either way, it seems like a very tricky, tricky job. I, I'm picturing almost like a, a some kind of complex machine and there's all these different gears working, mm-hmm. right? As soon as you turn one gear, it sort of affects all the other gears exactly. later down the road, right? And in fact, actually, the, the Department of Defense has gotten involved and has tried to sort of help educate uh, the, the general public on just how complicated it is managing water systems. What did you find out there? Yeah, I think it was 2011 or 2012. Um, it was Missouri that had a huge kind of like this year, like a really wet, uh, wet year, a lot of rain, a lot of snowfall. And then um, in spring, it was a really quick warm up and the flooding was insane. I guess there's a lot of damage. People had damage to their homes, their farms, their businesses. And so people were, you know, very upset at the just like kind of like the city and the management of the water flow, I guess. And so. Eileen Williamson and her team of engineers, they kind of wanted to find a way to communicate to the public what goes into water flow management and how, you know, such difficult decisions have to be made in times of flood. And so what they did is they created a game. So they wanted to communicate risk management in the context of a game so that people are more, I guess, willing to hear. Because, you know, when people, there's damage, they lost their homes. They're obviously high emotions. They don't really want to listen. They don't care what the explanation is. So Eileen thought... If they created a game, kind of brought it into schools, show kids and adults how hard it is to manage water flow, they might see kind of like what goes on behind the scenes. I played the game. I'm terrible. I, I did not do a very good job at this game. So we should all be lucky that I'm not in control of the of the Tahoe, uh, Truckee, or, or Carson River systems. But what were some of the, the things that you can do in the game? Like, um, you know, I, I guess what are what are some of the things they're trying to teach or what are some of the goals you're trying to accomplish there? Yeah. So you have kind of like this big map and that you can see that there is, you know, parks, there is homes, there's businesses. And then you can see where all the water is flowing through each of them. And there's all these things that you have to keep in keep in mind. And so when there is a lot of water flow, what are you going to do? Which what's going to go first? Because you, you can't control rainfall. So what can you do and what's going to have to go going to go forest and so like why you know she said why are you why is your home built near this river system and would you build a home near this river system and what would you do instead would you buy flood insurance like all these things you can kind of look into into the game and see okay here's my options here's the situation where am I gonna how can I direct this water flow I did I did terrible too so I kind of (laughs) it was no good I think we're we're better suited behind the mics here than than probably in the water management role uh yeah I found it interesting in the game that you know, there's essentially two reservoirs, and we're talking about the very. This is a very simplistic yeah. uh, river system compared to, say, the the Tahoe Pyramid uh, Truckee system, right? Where that system, the, the Tahoe Truckee, has has four reservoirs. There's a, a handful of other downstream uses. Whereas this game is literally, you've got two reservoirs, and there's hydroelectric, uh, some farming. Like they tried to really simplify it, and even when it's very simple, one slight adjustment on one dam. Uh, completely either floods one area makes hydroelectric completely non-existent it's it was incredible at least from my perspective to see just how little you have to adjust things for it to make a big impact yeah everything's connected and you can really see that in the game visually and so uh, i'm just curious to know you know uh what what were some of the things that were most surprising to you throughout this process was there anything that kind of jumped out to you or was like wow i never thought of that before yeah i guess um 
I don't know. I guess I never thought about how, so, the, you know, the Watermaster controls all the river systems as, you know, Lake Tahoe, Truckee, Carson, Pyramid. I thought they might be all operated under different entities a little bit, but in conjunction with the Paiute Pyramid tribe, the Watermaster kind of controls everything. So that was really interesting because you have all these different competing interests. You have, you know, the people in the city and people up at Lake Tahoe and that. I guess I was surprised to learn that. And uh, Dave Wathen also told me that um, there was a misconception about this year's rainfall or I guess precipitation because it was a record year for snowpack, but it was not a record year for precipitation rainfall, which seems obvious now that I say it, but I did not, you know, compute or kind of connect the two. So we got a lot of snow, um, not as much rain, but the snow now that it's melting, obviously, we see the, the effects of that. So and that's going to be the the next big thing, I think, as we get into the the rest of the summer months, especially with triple digit temperatures that we've been seeing here lately throughout northern Nevada. Hannah Truby is a grad student at the UNR School of Journalism and is a regular contributor with the Sierra Nevada Ally. Hannah, thank you so much for your reporting and thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. That'll do it for Ally Radio this week. A big thank you to Dr. Sandra Cosgrove and Hannah Truby for joining the show. Ally Radio is a partnership between the Sierra Nevada Ally and KNVC Carson City Community Radio, which broadcasts the show every Friday at noon. Support for our work comes from our readers and listeners, and you can make a financial contribution right now at sierranevadaally.org or at knvc.org. You can also stream KNVC live 24 hours a day at that website. You can keep up with the latest news and information from the Sierra Nevada Ally at our website, sierranevadaally.org. While you're there, sign up for our free newsletter and get the latest stories sent to your email inbox. Ideas, corrections, tips, send them our way. You can email me directly at Noah, that's N-O-A-H, at sierranevadaally.org. Oh, and before we go, we just wanted to let you know that the Sierra Nevada Ally is now available as a podcast. You can check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or by searching for Sierra Nevada Ally wherever you listen. I'm Noah Glick, and until next time, let's be good to each other.